We return this morning to our study of the book of Daniel, and it is not only the passion of my heart, but my most solemn responsibility to make sure that I teach this so that you understand it. This is the Word of God to us, and it is very important that we know what he has to say. So if you will turn to Daniel chapter 11, we will be looking at several of the verses between verses 36 and 45 under the heading, The Willful King, the Antichrist. And as you will see, this will just be part one. Now today we move beyond the 135 fulfilled prophecies in Daniel 11, verses 2 through 35. We're moving beyond that to events that have never been fulfilled historically. Descriptions where there is no specific correspondence in history. So this morning we examine this and we will see that it has great relevance even for us today because it is pointing to things beyond where we live now, but where we are headed. Many ask me, Pastor, where do you think all of this chaos in the world is headed? All of the insanity and ungodliness in our country. Where is all of this going? The, 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 the false narrative of, of critical race theory and the militant aggression of the woke cult that has now invaded even evangelicalism. The LGBTQ mafia and the transgender insanity. Where is all of this going? The COVID fear mongering and the experimental vaccine mandate and the passports that now, I don't know how many thousands of truckers and people are in Canada. I noticed that in my old stomping grounds over in British Columbia, there's a huge group of people even there in Victoria. Where is all of this going? Of course, it's moving towards a social credit score. I hope you realize that. That's ultimately what the elites want, just like China, so that they can control us. We've got runaway inflation, open borders, the slaughter of the unborn, totalitarian politicians that are not only incompetent and immoral, but in many ways they're delusional. And half of the country votes for these people. Where is all of this going? Well, according to scripture, the short answer is God is allowing Satan to prepare the world for the rule of the Antichrist where there will be a one-world government, a one-world ruler, a one-world economy, and a one-world religion. The dream of every social warrior, social justice warrior, globalism, a socialistic utopia, but by the way, one that cannot coexist with biblical Christianity. False Christianity, yes, that'll be part of it, but not biblical Christianity. As I stated in my book, Why America Hates Biblical Christianity, 
The vast majority of Americans in both political parties live for this world. Christians live for heaven. Their priority is the pursuit of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Ours is the glory of God. They live for this life only. We live for eternity. They set their affections on the things of the earth. We set our affections on the things above. They lay up treasures on earth. We lay up treasures in heaven. They consider this world their home. We consider ourselves strangers in it. They obsess over preserving the planet. We believe God will destroy it and recreate it. They obey the ever-changing morality of a sin-cursed culture. We obey the never-changing laws of an infinitely holy God. They believe man can achieve utopia on earth. We believe God alone can bring in everlasting righteousness, peace, and prosperity. Can there be any greater disparities in worldviews than these few examples? I think not. Dear friends, our hope is in Christ, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, who will one day rule over a new heaven and a new earth, the one who is coming for us. One day the curse will be lifted, and sin, Satan, and death that was defeated at the cross will be removed forever. And everyone who has been washed in the blood of the Lamb will see his face, and we will reign with him forever. That is the hope of the believer. These eschatological promises shape everything we do. At least they should. And if they don't for you, there's something terribly wrong with your faith, something terribly wrong with your understanding of Scripture. We live in light of eternity, not for this life only. The certainties of our salvation and heavenly destinies cause us to say with the Apostle John, come. Lord Jesus. Now, remember, the book of Daniel is to the Old Testament what the book of, the, of Revelation is to the New Testament. In fact, Daniel is the key interpretive, key to interpreting the Olivet Discourse that Jesus gave us, for example, in Matthew 24. Remember, there he said, in verse 15, when you see the abomination of desolation, which was spoken of through Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place, let the reader understand, then those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains. Later on in verse 21, for then there will be a great tribulation such as has not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever will, unless those days had been cut short, no life would have been saved, but for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. There are obvious parallels between Daniel's prophecies and many New Testament prophecies. When John says in 1 John 2.18, you heard that the Antichrist is coming, indeed they had heard that, but the ultimate and final Antichrist, will, the, the man of lawlessness, will one day be allowed to reign just before Christ returns. Paul speaks of this in 2 Thessalonians 2, beginning in verse 3. He says, Let no one in any way deceive you, for it will not come, referring to the day of the Lord, the final 
period of divine judgment unless the apostasy comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. This is referring to the abomination of desolation recorded in Daniel 9. Paul goes on to say, Do you not remember that while I was still with you, I was telling you these things? And you know what restrains him now, so that in his time he will be revealed. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. Then that lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth and bring to an end by the appearance of his coming. And there Paul is merely rehearsing what Daniel says, that no human agency will destroy the Antichrist, but the Lord Jesus Christ will bring it into his life by the appearance of his coming. Paul went on to say, that is the one whose coming is in accord with the activity of Satan. With all power and signs and false wonders, and with all the deception of wickedness for those who perish, because they did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved. For this reason, God will send upon them a deluding influence so that they will believe what is false in order that they all may be judged who did not believe the truth but took pleasure in wickedness. So throughout Scripture, we see Daniel's influence. In fact, Daniel's prophecies provide the foundation for the chronological structure and much of the symbolism of Revelation chapter 6 through 9. Through Daniel's prophecy, we see God revealing the successive stages of Gentile domination throughout the ages. And that will continue until Messiah returns in power and great glory as King of kings and Lord of lords, when he judges the nations, when he defeats them, when he establishes his glorious millennial kingdom his universal reign upon this earth, that day in which he will fulfill all of the physical as well as spiritual covenant promises to a regenerated Israel, that day in which we too shall reign with him. Now, it's important for me to remind you from time to time of the big picture of Daniel. Sometimes, especially when you're in Bible prophecy, uh, it can feel like you're an aborigine and you have never seen a car and some guy's up there telling you all about a transmission, all right? So we need to come back and say, let me tell you what a car is. In chapters one through seven, the inspired prophet reveals God's sovereign rule over history, over all of the nations and those who lead them. In fact, in Daniel chapter two and Daniel seven, he reveals how God will unexpectedly and astonishingly establish his kingdom after the utter ruin of four literal successive Gentile empires, that being Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and Rome, and then a revived Roman empire at the end of the age ruled by the Antichrist. 
And just as the four, those four ancient kingdoms were, were literal kingdoms, so too the revived Roman kingdom will be real, a real geographical and political kingdom as well as the messianic kingdom that will come and destroy it and replace it. Then in chapters 8 through 12, God reveals his sovereign rule over Israel's future. And that, of course, is where we've been over the last several months. There he unveils his kingdom promises both during and after Gentile domination in the world, what is called the times of the Gentiles. And I also want to remind you that the last seven chapters of Deuteronomy, chapters 28 through 34, provide as David Larson says, quote, the matrix out of which the great prophecies of the Old Testament regarding Israel emerge. In other words, if you want to get a blueprint of what God sees overall for his covenant people, this would be it. I have given you a handout on this before. I'll not repeat all of it, but suffice it to say that in chapters 26 and 28 of Deuteronomy, we see the conditions of blessing that would follow obedience. And then chapter 31 speaks of the coming apostasy. Again, in chapter 28, we read about the affliction that God will bring upon Israel while still in the land because of her apostasy. Chapters, in chapter 28, we read about how Israel will be taken captive. In chapters 27 and 32, we read how the enemies of Israel will possess her land for a time. Also in Deuteronomy 28 and 29, we read how the land itself will remain desolate. Deuteronomy 28 and 32, we read how Israel will be scattered among the nations. And then in chapter 28, though punished, Israel will not be destroyed if she repents. And also in chapter 28, as well as chapter 30, we read how Israel will repent one day in her tribulation. And finally, in chapter 30, verses 3 through 10, we read how Israel will be gathered from the nations and brought back to her divinely given land. And we see all of this unveiled in Bible prophecy. Much of it has been fulfilled literally to date, but the rest will follow. And we must also remember that the Spirit of God inspired Daniel to write this magnificent book to encourage God's people, his kinsmen, those that were in exile, in Babylonian exile, to encourage them throughout their weary sojourn, even beyond the days of Babylon. And here we also witness the miracle of divine providence that's orchestrating all of the events of world history to accomplish his ultimate purposes. And that is to exalt our Savior and King and to redeem all whom the Father has given him. According to Revelation 7, beginning in verse 9, this will include a great multitude which no one could count from every nation and all tribes and peoples and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, and palm branches were in their hands. And they cry out with a loud voice, saying, Salvation to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. 
Now, a few technical things, but this is very important. Otherwise, I wouldn't waste your time with them, all right? So bear with me. Before we examine the text, you must understand that there is a stark contrast between the prophecies pertaining to Antiochus Epiphanes in verses 21 through 35 and that of the king who according to verse 36 will do as he pleases and who will exalt and magnify himself above every god. You see, neither Antiochus Epiphanes nor even Herod the Great ever sought to exalt and magnify himself above every god. In fact, despite the 135 stunning and precise prophetic fulfillments concerning the Persian and Grecian empires revealed in chapter 11, 2 through 35, the events and the descriptions that are being revealed in verses 36 through 45 have no specific correspondence to history despite many tortured attempts to prove otherwise. And we see two phrases in verse 35 that really serve as markers of this transition from that which has been fulfilled to that which is yet future and unfulfilled. Notice verse 35. We read, some of those who have insight will fall in order to refine, purge, and make them pure until the end time. In other words, the persecution of the saints will continue until Christ returns, and that's referred to as the end time. Now, to be sure, this would include the era of Antiochus Epiphanes, but his tyrannical rule of horror could not be called the end time. There was no climactic end time or end age of, his, of persecution against Israel that ceased with the death of Antiochus Epiphanes. That's just simply not there. His reign merely prefigured such a time. The age detailed in Daniel's 70th week, the time of the tribulation, the great judgments, the pre-kingdom judgments. The, the next phrase in verse 35 only strengthens this transition when the prophet states, because it is still to come at the appointed time, referring to the events pertaining to the person and the work of the Antichrist that's going to be described now in verses 36 through 35, the coming willful king of whom, now catch this, Antiochus Epiphanes was merely a type. He just foreshadowed the Antichrist. And as we will see, these descriptions will parallel other descriptions of the Antichrist given elsewhere in Scripture. Moreover, to say, as some do, that verses 36 through 45 is a further historic and prophetic account uh, fulfilled in Antiochus Epiphanes makes this whole section of Scripture beg for relevance. Here's what I mean. Why would the policies of this person be introduced for the first time and reviewed in detail if this were a reference to Antiochus, whose person and policies and detailed life history have already been given. That would be a non sequitur. 
As far as the Jews were concerned, no further treatment of Antiochus is necessary because he's dead and gone. Furthermore, Antiochus was never introduced in the preceding verses as, quote, the king, the form that we see in verse 36, using the definite article, the king. Not even his predecessors were ever referred to as the king. They were always designated as a mighty king or the king of the south, the king of the north. Antiochus was only called a king one time, and that was jointly with Ptolemy in verse 27. But as we will see, beloved, in verse 36, using the definite article, the king is a reference to what Daniel has been discussing in the past in previous revelations. You will recall in Daniel 7, verse 8, he, referring to the Antichrist, is called the little horn that starts out small. Do you remember that? And he gradually appears among the other horns, but by verses 24 and following, he overpowers the other ten horns. Let me read that to you, Daniel 7 beginning in verse 24. As for the ten horns, out of this kingdom ten kings will arise. Again, now, this is yet future. And another will arise after them, and he will be different from the previous ones and will subdue three kings. He will speak out against the Most High and wear down the saints of the highest one, and he will intend to make alterations in times and in law, and they will be given into his hand for a time, times, and a half a time. But the court will sit for judgment and his dominion will be taken away, annihilated and destroyed forever. Now that's certainly no reference to Antiochus Epiphanes. In Daniel 8, 23, the Antichrist is called a king insolent and skilled in intrigue. In Daniel 9, 26, he's called the prince that shall come. You see, all of these passages are revealed to us in the context of the coming tribulation, Daniel's 70th week. And finally, I must add that it is only fitting that Daniel would speak here of the Antichrist in his fourth and final revelation, since he has already set him forth in the three preceding ones. So what we are about to examine I would humbly argue against brothers that I love who would say differently that this has nothing to do with Antiochus Epiphanes, but everything to do with the antitype of which Antiochus Epiphanes was merely the type. This is speaking of the coming Antichrist. This is speaking of a time of distress. Chapter 12 here in in verse 1 speaks of this time of distress In other words, he's going to rule during a time of of history where we have the most severe persecution of Israel, which corresponds to what Jesus said in Matthew 24, 21, and also what Jeremiah the prophet prophesied. In Jeremiah chapter 30, beginning in verse 7, we read, Alas, for that day is great, there is none like it, and it is the time of Jacob's distress but he will be saved from it. It shall come about on that day, declares the Lord of hosts, that I will break his yoke from off their neck and will tear off their bonds and strangers will no longer make them their slaves. 
but they shall serve the Lord their God and David their king, whom I raise, I will raise up for them. Fear not, O Jacob, my servant, declares the Lord, and do not be dismayed, O Israel, for behold, I will save you from afar and your offspring from the land of their captivity. And Jacob will return and will be quiet and at ease, and no one will make him afraid, for I am with you, declares the Lord, to save you, for I will destroy completely all the nations where I have scattered you, only I will not destroy you completely, but I will chasten you justly and will by no means leave you unpunished. So with that introduction, let's read the text here in Daniel 11, beginning in verse 36. Then the king, referring to the Antichrist, will do as he pleases. And he will exalt and magnify himself above every god and will speak monstrous things against the god of gods and he will prosper until the indignation is finished. For that which is decreed will be done. He will show no regard for the gods of his fathers or for the desire of women. Nor will he show regard for any other god for he will magnify himself above them all. But instead he will honor a god of fortresses, a god whom his fathers did not know. He will honor him with gold, silver, costly stones, and treasures. He will take action against the strongest of fortresses with the help of a foreign god. He will give great honor to those who acknowledge him and will cause them to rule over the many and will parcel out land for a price. At the end time, the king of the south will collide with him. The king of the north will storm against him with chariots with horsemen and with many ships, and he will enter countries, overflow them, and pass through. He will also enter the beautiful land, and many countries will fall, but these will be rescued out of his hand, Edom, Moab, and the foremost of the sons of Ammon. Then he will stretch out his hand against other countries, and the land of Egypt will not escape, but he will gain control over the hidden treasures of gold and silver and over all the precious things of Egypt, and Libyans and Ethiopians will follow at his heels. But rumors from the east and from the north will disturb him, and he will go forth with great wrath to destroy and annihilate many. He will pitch the tents of his royal pavilion between the seas and the beautiful holy mountain, yet he will come to his end, and no one will help him. Now, I've given you a little outline here, very simple. We're going to look first of all at the final willful king, the Antichrist in verse 36. And then secondly, we'll look at the final world religion, that's verses 37 through 39. And then the next time when I am with you, we will look at the final military conquests in verses 40 through 45. Let's look closely at what the Spirit of God has for us in his word under the heading, The Final Willful King, the Antichrist. Verse 36. Then the king will do as he pleases, and he will exalt and magnify himself above every god and will speak monstrous things against the god of gods. Now, as I said earlier in chapter 12, verse 1, we are given some helpful context for when this will occur, namely, 
a time of distress such as never occurred since there was a nation until that time. And at that time, your people, everyone who's found in the book of in the book will be rescued. So this fits in the context now of the great tribulation, Daniel's 70th week, uh, the pre-kingdom judgments. And it will be at that time, once again, verse 36, that this king will do as he pleases and he will exalt and magnify himself above every god and will speak monstrous things against the god of gods. Now, I would add that no world ruler has ever done this in the context of Roman power over the Israelis in the land of Israel, including the Hellenistic Antiochus Epiphanes who worshiped the pantheon of Grecian gods and demanded that the Jews do the same thing. But this does fit the descriptions that we find elsewhere in scripture of the Antichrist. Daniel spoke of this in Daniel 7.25. He will speak out against the Most High and wear down the saints of the Highest One. Daniel 8.24, his power will be mighty, but not by his own power, and he will destroy to an extraordinary degree and prosper and perform his will. He will destroy mighty men and the holy people. Paul speaks of this in 2 Thessalonians 2.4, as the man of lawlessness who will be revealed, the son of destruction who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. And again, as I mentioned before, Matthew 24, the Antichrist will desecrate the temple, Jesus tells us, committing the abomination of desolation, deifying himself. He will be the greatest enemy of Israel in all of history. And this act of apostasy will be the most blasphemous act in the history of the world. We could go to the book of Revelation, in chapter 13, looking at verses 6 through 8. There we learn how God has ordained 42 months, a 42-month season of blasphemy against himself. And this will include the Antichrist blaspheming him against three things. There we read, and he opened his mouth and blasphemies against God, First of all, to blaspheme his name. And of course, the name of God expresses the consummate perfections, the sum of all of his attributes. He will blaspheme his name. Secondly, and his temple. The temple is where God exists in transcendent glory, the glories of heaven from which Satan by now has been expelled. And then also against those who dwell in heaven. This is a reference to the saints and the holy angels whom Satan hates. The text goes on to say it was also given to him to make war with the saints and to overcome them. And authority over every tribe and people and tongue and nation was given to him. Now we see further evidence of this megalomaniac who will do as he pleases in Revelation 17, beginning in verse 12. And the ten horns which you saw are ten kings who have not yet received a kingdom, but they receive authority as kings with the beast, that's him, the Antichrist, for one hour. One hour is a figure of speech denoting a very brief period of time, one that is shorter than the reign of the beast himself. 
In that context, we read how there will be ten subordinate rulers of ten lesser kingdoms that will join a confederacy with the Antichrist and become a part of his empire. We read about this again back in Daniel chapter 7, verse 7, as well as verse 24. Back to Revelation 17, verse 13. These have one purpose, and they give their power and authority to the beast. So they will be united in their allegiance with the beast as together they oppose the Lamb of God and all who belong to him. So again, back to verse 36. I know you're thinking we'll never get out of verse 36. We will. Then the king will do as he pleases and he will exalt and magnify himself above every god and will speak monstrous. It could be translated astonishing things against the God of gods. Now, I would submit to you that this isn't a stretch at all for us. I mean, we see politicians blaspheming God constantly, routinely. They're constantly passing laws that are an insult to the one true God. And imagine what it will be like when all power is consolidated in one man. Imagine what that will be like. The text goes on to say, and he will prosper until the indignation is finished, for that which is decreed will be done. Interesting term, indignation. Daniel uses the same phrase, the indignation, in chapter 8, verse 19, when speaking of the tribulation period. There we read, Behold, I am coming to let you know what will occur at the final period of the indignation, for it pertains to the appointed time of the end. Again, referring to the final seven years before Christ returns. Daniel's 70th week. You read about in Daniel 9, verse 27. So again, verse 36, at the end, He will prosper until the indignation is finished. For that which is decreed will be done. Well, what was decreed? What's he talking about here? Well, go back to Daniel 9 and verse 24. There we read of the 70 weeks have been decreed for your people and your holy city. Literally 77, 70 heptads, units of seven. 70 times seven, 490 years have been decreed. The text is telling us that God deliberately decreed or determined these 490 years to be cut off from all of the rest of history to accomplish his purposes with Israel, his people Israel and their capital city Jerusalem, which was consistent with what Daniel was praying for to understand. Obviously, by the way, this didn't happen at his first coming, but it will happen in his second coming. Notice in Daniel 9:24, there are six objectives to be accomplished in this decree. First of all, to finish the transgression, referring to the violation of God's law. They revolted against God's authority, especially their, their unrelenting an unrestrained rebellion against God. He is going to finish that. He's going to deal with that. Secondly, to make an end of sin, which is a more general term of, of all wrongs, to seal it up that it might be concealed. In other words, to judge it with finality. Thirdly, to make 
atonement for iniquity, kafar in Hebrew, um, to cover by means of an expiatory sacrifice. It's the idea of making a covering. It's the idea of atonement to provide a moral or legal repayment for a fault or an injury. And also it was decreed, number four, to bring in everlasting righteousness. Number five, to seal up vision and prophecy. This speaks of hiding from view and demonstrating that these functions are over, vision being revelation, prophecy being the message of the prophets, and then six, to anoint the most holy place. In other words, to officially inaugurate into public ministry the most holy place, literally the holy of holies in the millennial temple. All of these things have been decreed. Daniel 9.27 goes on to describe what's going to happen during this final week of years. And he will make a firm covenant, he being the Antichrist, with the many for one week. In other words, this great deceiver is going to lure Israel into a protective agreement called a covenant. But in the middle of the week, he will put a stop to sacrifice and grain offering. And on the wing of abominations will come one who makes desolate, even until a complete destruction, one that is decreed is poured out on the one who makes desolate. So in other words, in the middle of the week, after three and a half years, this satanically possessed Antichrist will seize the temple, he will betray the Jews, and he will demand to be worshipped like his forerunner, Antiochus Epiphanes. And this is the one pictured as well in Revelation 13, verse 1 and verse 5, as the beast that comes up out of the sea given a mouth speaking arrogant words and blasphemies and authority to act for 42 months was given to him, referring to the last half of the seven years. Now back again to Daniel 11:36. He will prosper until the indignation is finished for that which is decreed will be done. Yes, what was decreed the 490 years before the Messiah would finally do all of these things and establish his long-awaited and promised millennial kingdom. So this vile, blasphemous ruler will prosper, but only as long as a sovereign God allows him to prosper. So we've seen the final willful king, the Antichrist in verse 36. What about the final world religion? And this just touches on it. There are other passages, especially in Revelation, that reveal more of this. But we see this in verses 37 through 39. Notice verse 37, he will show no regard actually for three things. First of all, no regard for the gods of his fathers. Now, the King James Version is misleading here. It says, the God of his fathers, capital G. And so many people will read that and say, well, this means the Antichrist must be a Jew because the God of his fathers would be the Messiah. He's going to reject the Messiah. But the word translated God is Elohim, not Yahweh. And this is a name for God in general, applying to all gods. And had the writer 
I believe, intended to refer to the one true God of Israel, he would have used the term Yahweh, not Elohim. So the proper translation is, he will show no regard for the gods of his fathers, which would include the full pantheon of pagan deities worshipped by the Romans and all peoples, since we know the Antichrist is going to come out of this revived kind of European Roman Empire. But it would also include uh, having no regard for the one true God worshipped by the saints. So the point is simply this. When the end comes, this fiend will not only be the Antichrist, the pseudo-Christ, but he will be an utterly godless person, rejecting any and all gods of his ancestors. But the verse goes on to say, he will show no regard for the desire of women. Now, what does this mean? Perhaps it means he will be a homosexual, perhaps a misogynist of some sort, or perhaps he is prefigured by, because he's prefigured by uh, Antiochus Epiphanes, uh, maybe he will just, uh, who, by the way, was a notorious womanizer. Uh, it may mean that he will just not share the normal graces of a woman, that he will not have any tenderness, some people say, or graciousness or kindness. Another view says, since the Messiah, Messiah is often said to be the natural desire of Jewish women who longed to be the mother of the Messiah, some will say that he disregards the one beloved by women, referring to the Lord Jesus Christ. John Walbert says this, quote, pious Jewish women in pre-Messianic times had one great desire. They wanted to be mothers with a view to him who is the promised seed of the woman. He's referring there to the promised seed in, in the Proto-Evangelium of Genesis 3:15. He went on to say, his birth was beloved by these godly mothers of Israel. This king then hates God and hates his blessed son, the Lord Jesus Christ. So I'm giving you various views. We can't say with certainty, all right? And I know what you're going to say, so I'm just going to handle it right now rather than have you line up at the end of the service. Which one do I think it is? Well, I believe that he's probably referring to the Antichrist as a homosexual since homosexuality is an assault against the image and the glory of God revealed in creation. Homosexuality devise, defies God's moral order, and it is an inversion of God's physical order. And as a result, we know from Romans 1 that those who live in that world are eventually given over to a reprobate, depraved mind that is utterly worthless and irrational. So I would think that that would probably fit, but I don't know, you don't know, we don't know. Verse 37, again, he will show no regard for the gods of his fathers or for the desire of women. And then thirdly, nor will he show regard for any other god, for he will magnify himself above them all. So not only will he reject all other gods, he will claim deity for himself. As I said earlier in 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 4, Paul describes him as the one who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called god or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, 
displaying himself as being God. And then in Daniel eleven thirty eight, we go on and we see what is revealed to us. But instead, he will honor a God of fortresses. Ma'azim, fortresses, uh, means a strong place. Namely, in this context, his unprecedented, satanically empowered military might and power. A God, it goes on to say, whom his fathers did not know. Now, mind you, ancient Rome believed their military conquests were done in accordance to their pantheon of gods, and they even deified their emperor. But not so the coming Antichrist. He rejects all gods, save himself, and his confidence, his faith, you might say, the object of his worship will be his military power. And here that is personified in the phrase, the God of fortresses. Now, we all know that military readiness and military conquests are very expensive. And so the text goes on to say, he will honor him, referring to his God of fortresses, military might and power, with gold, silver, costly stones and treasures. Literally everything that is valuable. Young asserts, quote, for religion he will substitute war, and war he will support with all that he has. Verse 39, he will take action against the strongest of fortresses with the help of a foreign god. In other words, his overwhelming, uh, seemingly invincible military power. This is the foreign god. He will give great honor to those who acknowledge him and will cause them to rule over the many and will parcel out land for a peace. In other words, he is going to reward those he conquers with honor and land and positions of authority as long as they obey him and serve him and worship him. Those who pay homage to their king. Beloved, can you see a counterfeit here? The more the obeisance, the more the reward. And so as Satan's pawn, he will know how to appeal to the sinful heart of men who will sell their soul for the fleeting pleasures of this life. And we see it all the time. They will be men who fear man rather than God. Beloved, this will be the final world religion the worship of the Antichrist. John MacArthur said something interesting along this line. Quote, Through all the ages there has been a Cain for every Abel. There has been a Janus and Jambres for every Moses. There has been a Babylon for every Jerusalem and a Herod for every John the Baptist and a Judas for every Peter. And ultimately, there will be another and final Antichrist for the true Christ. Well, child of God, this is where the world is heading. And aren't you thankful that we have been saved by his grace and that our God reigns? 
but he will use the wicked to accomplish his purposes to bring glory to himself and to fulfill all of his covenant promises. Well, this is a good stopping point. Let me, let me encourage you for a moment as your pastor. You know, although we, <laughs> we see the world heading in these directions and, and moving inexorably towards a day of judgment, and although we resent and we fear the, the despots that rule over us, may I remind you that these are mere men, all right? These are mere men. We worship Almighty God, right? And scripture describes them as those who pursue vanity. They chase the wind. They're spiritually dead at enmity with God, enemies of God. They're mere worms, clay, dying grass, fading flowers. You're going to be afraid of them? All of our lives in Scripture are likened to a vapor, to a bubble, to a shadow. We're going to be afraid of them? Really? Jeremiah Burroughs was a 17th century Puritan clergyman who endured great persecution at the hands of the apostate church of England uh, and the king, along with many other clergymen who refused to obey the superstitions and the unbiblical uh, ceremonies of the church of England. And yet he reasoned from scripture about their fragile state, the fragile state of the wicked that persecuted him, these people in power. He compared them in scripture, I should say scripture compares them, and he saw this as dross, dust, a rotten root, straw trodden down from the dunghill, the froth and foam of the sea and threads in the fires. He said, quote, the greater men are in their power, the sooner they perish. And he went on to add, wicked men are going to their destruction as a thing rolling by the wind. Just think of it, dear friends. The wicked that are in power over us today blaspheme God in the midst of all of their pleasures. And yet, one day, very soon, they will be in hell where they will blaspheme God forever in their pain. Don't be afraid of them. Pity them, pray for them, give them the gospel. Be of good cheer. Fear God, not man. What did Jesus say? Do not fear those who will kill the body, but are unable to kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Therefore, like Paul, we need to be able to say, I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances. I am. And in his excellent book, The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment, that I would encourage you all to read, Jeremiah Burroughs defined Christian contentment this way. Christian contentment is that sweet, inward, quiet, gracious frame of spirit 
which freely submits to and delights in God's wise and fatherly disposal in every condition, end quote. And I might add, including the wickedness that's being forced upon us in our day. So may we all joyfully submit to Christ's tutelage during these difficult days and rejoice in every circumstance knowing that God is in it and he is accomplishing great things for our good and for his glory. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the magnificent truths of your word and pray that by the power of your spirit we will be able to not only understand them but apply them in such a way as to bear much fruit for your glory. And for those that may be within the sound of my voice that know nothing, be in a right relationship with you through faith in Christ. They know nothing of what it means for Christ and enjoy the fullness of his presence in their life. Lord, I pray that you will so overwhelm them with conviction today that they will be absolutely stunned, horrified at the reality of their sin and what it deserves, and therefore be amazed at the grace that can be theirs if they but place their faith in the giver of grace, our precious Savior, the Lord Jesus. Lord, we plead with you to accomplish this great work. And we do this in Jesus' name. Amen. We pray you've been edified by this presentation. You've been listening to the teaching ministry of Calvary Bible Church in Jolton, Tennessee. For more information on Calvary Bible Church or for more audio, please visit our website at cbctn.org.